This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories. In response to your presentation by Matt Plass and Milk, the Wound, and Recompense by John Stadler. We're well into our third year of podcasting short stories, and that's every month, come hell or high water. Bound Off is always looking for great stories. Visit our website at boundoff.com to find our submission guidelines. While there, check out our news blog. You can also find links to us on Facebook and MySpace. Also on our website is the Bound Off Bookstore, in affiliation with Amazon. You can find books by past Bound Off contributors, such as The Morning of the Red Admirals by Poet Laureate Robert Dana, and Fires by Nick Antosca. In response to your presentation, written by Matt Plass, read by Dave Robinson and Mark Rushton. Listening time, 8 minutes, 10 seconds. In response to your presentation by Matt Plass. Dear Counselor Trench, regarding our meeting of 19 June 2007 to discuss proposed fast access road from New Haven to Eastbourne. Michael, first of all, may I thank you for your eye-opening address to our Residents Association on Thursday. What an ambitious plan. Following our conversation over refreshments, I'm writing to invite you to share a Sussex sunset with me. You have a busy schedule, I appreciate, but could you, I'd be grateful, find some time next week to walk with me up onto the downs. With regards to our current impasse, a country stroll may be a useful exercise. There are some things I would like you to see. For sunsets, we are spoiled for choice, of course. My wife used to claim she could see heaven through the chalk cleft of Burling Gap, but I am leaning toward the up and over. Such a popular spot for tourists, you may have been there. If you haven't, Michael, then you are in for a treat. I doubt you have ever seen a day die as well as they die up there. If time allows, we'll scoot up to Butt's Brow in the Allegro, pick up the bridleway and walk down to Jevington. I know, only three miles, but it's mostly downhill and my knees aren't what they were. Time or walk just so, and we'll be chasing the last light down Bourne Hill. Eleanor and I used to joke that dusk turned the fields to Battenberg cake. If we get the right mix of pinks and golds, you'll see. Apologies, Michael. I'm talking as if you've never set foot in the countryside. Of course, there are some things you'll recognize and I'm sure appreciate. Eastbourne, for example, is oddly magnificent from Butt's Brow. From the hilltop at night, it could be Constantinople. The scattered light in the center, that's the old town. As we walk, we can discuss progress. You raised some interesting points in your presentation, and some of the questions that you regrettably didn't have time for were mine. I was intrigued particularly by your comparison between the old quarry path at Filching and this proposed highway. Progress is progress, you said, and progress has always met with resistance. True. But you said, and I think this was the best of your slides, when a compelling vision for the future and a set of clear action steps combine to create a greater force than the resistance to change, then change can occur. I wrote it down. Who would have thought that our reluctance to sanction a new road, your great black snake of a new road, stemmed from nothing more than bullheaded resistance to change? Never mind. You'll have plenty of time to set me right as we walk off our lunch through the stables and down to the church. You may need to indulge me on the way. My father bred horses. But I think you'll agree it's worth the detour. The stallion is gone, God rest. But the new gelding is a beauty. Slate gray with white socks. A competition winner. 
Eleanor would have melted over that one. Between the stables and the church, and it's only a hundred yards, I can show you three things of mine. I'll point and I'll say, I built that goose run, still standing. I helped seed that copse. I hammered that fence in and twice again after storms. There's a lot of me around here, Michael. We pitch in, and I was a busy man. When we reach the churchyard, you can read the earliest remaining memorial stone, dated 1710. I'd like to point out the new plantation. Fingers crossed, it's taking just fine. Then, stand with me beneath the Saxon tower and look straight up. Feel the weight of a thousand years falling towards us. Step inside the church. It's always open, and I'll show you two generations of men lost in one day. Three Woodrows there, three Pickerings, and on the right-hand side, four knights. Four. A father and three sons, perhaps? Four brothers? What a day when those telegrams arrived. It wouldn't surprise me if you felt moved to drop a pound into the wooden box by the door. I'll certainly light a candle for the night women and for the others left behind. Can we, do you mind, pause for a moment at the third row from the back? I'd like to offer a quick prayer for my wife and that they might still find the driver. Have you heard anything in your official capacity? Every hope, the officer said. Paint flecks and a witness. And the bonnet must have been in a raw state. You know the horse survived. Lived another three years, but spoiled for work, of course. I think by the time we leave the churchyard, we'll have run out of light. But it would be remiss of me as your guide to not wind up our tour at the Hungry Monk restaurant for a slice of banoffee pie. Did you know it was invented there? And perhaps one last Sussex half under the oak beams. Which will bring us, Michael, to the nub of this letter. Before we part company, before you get into your car, I want you to stop me. Grab my arm. Take a lungful of rapeseed and bonfire. Think of all we've seen. Look me in the eye and tell me, honestly, that what we need here, what we really need in this, our precious corner of the world, for our own good, is a new road. Stand beside the Tapsel Gate and tell me that our community would benefit from more concrete and exhaust fumes. Beg me to sanction more traffic and faster cars, more tarmac and smoke and dust. Implore me to ratify diversions and delays and the endless plugging of pneumatic drills. Help me understand, educate me, explain to me, please, because my rustic mind is obviously not quite open enough why this solution that you propose could possibly in any sane world be a good thing. I am free this Friday, 6th July, and also Tuesday 10th. I look forward to hearing from you. Kind regards, Peter Unstead. Chairperson, Jevington Residents Association. Regarding your letter of 29th June 2007, Peter, this is not an easy letter. Regretfully, I cannot take up your kind offer to share a Sussex sunset any more than I could on May 1st or April 13th or on any of the dates suggested in your many letters. See selection attached. I must also point out, not for the first time, that the investigation into your wife's death was, and is, a police matter and nothing to do with this office. You know that I have enjoyed your impassioned descriptions over the past three years. I share your belief that the Sussex Downs stand against any for sheer natural beauty, and I consider both you and your late wife to have been great defenders of our heritage. Next time I am in Jevington, I will surely stop into the church and light a candle for Eleanor. But let's be clear. The Residents Association meeting to which you refer took place in June 2004, 
not June 2007. The proposal never made it past planning stage. The road was never built. To my knowledge, the plans are gathering dust in our basement. They may even have been destroyed. There is no intention in this office to resurrect the idea. Again, there is no road. Peter, we have been here so many times before. I'm afraid this letter will be our last correspondence. I am, as you acknowledge, extremely busy in my office as a local counselor. And where I had once hoped that the volume of your correspondence would diminish over time, the reverse, sadly, has proven to be true. Also, and it pains me to have to remind you of this, according to our records, the chair of the Jevington Residents Association passed to William Springer in the autumn of 2005. As such, you no longer speak in an official capacity. Peter, let this go. I remain, as ever, truly sorry for your loss. Kindest regards, Counselor Michael Trench. The End Matt Plass lives in Brighton, England. He is a member of Alex Keegan's Boot Camp for Writers. Milk the Wound and Recompense Written and read by John Stadler Listening time, 11 minutes, 30 seconds Milk the Wound and Recompense A story by John Stadler My mother is yelling at me again. It is not helping. Gulp the fucking milk, Kevin, for the love of God, drink. The scythe's descent silences her. I see her look, frozen-like, to the plummeting reaper. The scythe squeals. At the intersection of blade and bone, there is a thud, followed by a glistening, followed by the audience's roar. Her head rolls off the scaffold down a tubular track resembling a water slide. I wipe the congealing beads from my brow, and they smear. I don't have time for this. I must continue guzzling the one-gallon jugs of 2% milk. There are 12 more jugs before me. To my right, my wife Cindy tenaciously swigs jug after jug from a second milk stockpile. Her enormous, blistering lips latch to the glass rims with fierce determination. Not a drop is wasted. I used to mock Cindy for her big mouth. She could fit her entire fist into it, had made quite the commotion at the bar we met at to prove the brag. Though she stopped doing the trick after she overheard Riley say it had given me a boner. Right now I imagine her fist in it and recall how she used to gag a little just at the start. I look at her now, no gag reflex, just jug after endless jug of milk pouring down the enormous mouth. Before us and to the right, Cindy's remaining family members stand on their scaffold. Her sister, her father, her grandfather. They cheer her on with rallying cries that rhyme cleverly. Before this round, it had been close. To my left, my father and uncle stare down at me blankly from their scaffold. The host, Chaz McIntyre, announces to the poncho-wearing audience that five minutes are left in the milk-guzzling competition. This plastic-haired man elongates a non-existent diphthong in five. Five, he swerves. It takes forever. My ear is transfixed for a moment until camera three turns on. I catch myself staring blankly at the red blinking light, then remembering the jug before me. As I recommence, the milk runs down my lips, chin, throat, and chest in tributaries. 
I wish, momentarily, we had been allowed to wear clothing. I'm cold. The calcium coats my body in a frothy pallor. I imagine I resemble those performance artists Cindy forced us to endure last December, although they had used yogurt. The statement was one of poverty or hunger. I forget. I also consider the resemblance to the Australian Aboriginal and settle on this image more comfortably. Something is blinking now. I see the guzzle count, measured in ounces, slowly increase as the scythe ticker deletes seconds on the cacophony of LCD screens above my remaining family members. The metallic set shimmers in contrast against the wooden scaffolds and chalky glass jugs. Cindy has me beat by two and a half gallons. In exactly 32 seconds, my father will be the next to go. Two sequin-bedazzled attendants have retracted the scythe, freshly mopped of my mother, back to its starting position and locked it into place. The oppressive scythe ticker above the audience begins to flash, and Chaz encourages them to count along. They do so enthusiastically. I look up to my father on the scaffold. He seems to know better than to swear at me, as mother had. His silence, though, is equally obscene. I try to drink the milk again, speedily. I need to down three gallons in twenty seconds. By now I have drunk four and a half gallons. I haven't eaten any food in the last two days save for this morning when I ate an entire loaf of whole wheat bread. The AD said it would sop the milk up and keep me from vomiting. So far his advice has worked. I guzzle. I lap until my hairy tongue goes numb. It has been lapping down milk for the last fifteen minutes through seven executions. Mother, Uncle Tim, Aunt Nikki, cousins Brittany and Sam, brother Fred, and sister Carrie. No time to think about them. Focus on the milk. Dad and Uncle Bobby are still on the scaffold. I swig and swallow, swig and swallow, swig and swallow. I let the milk roar past my throat. It no longer tastes like the cool, refreshing drink I tell myself I recall from youth. The kind a mother might serve with cookies, if the mother were the sort who made cookies. This milk is not that milk. It is acrid and going lukewarm and stings my pharynx like a bug zapper. I recall my grade school choir teacher, Mr. Krauser, forbidding us to drink milk before the state competition for fear it would compromise our little boy voices. We sang Handel's Messiah that year and came in third. I even had a solo. Drinking. Yes. The flow continues. My stomach expands and ribs bow to make room for the fluid. I look over and am surprised to see Cindy's breasts are engorged into bowling balls. The milk, it would seem, is trying to escape from every possible orifice. The clothespin, despite the initial discomfort, was not a terrible idea. I'm glad I took the AD's advice. The audience shouts ten. For all my effort, I know it has made little difference. I look up to my father, who salutes me. Five, four, three, two, one. Swoop, thud, glisten. The audience cheers. My uncle remains. I never really cared for Uncle Bobby. He always confused my name with Fred's, which ultimately meant we both became Frevin, or Ked. Although now that Fred is gone, he should have little reason for confusion. One minute to go on the scythe ticker. Sirens wail. The beacon lights gyrate red and not red. It's the lightning round. The lightning round? I forget whether there usually was a lightning round. Two leggy attendants removed the jugs before me with some difficulty. The one to my left's breast looked fake. Is it over, I wonder? What about the last fifty seconds? The clock is stopped. My wife looks at me from her intoxicated cow eyes as if to ask, What gives? 
I shrug and wait for Chaz to speak. Two Holsteins drop from the rafters above us, lowered by an intricate pulley system. They play a moo track over the speaker system. I don't recall live cows. Must have beefed up the budget for this episode. Two Holsteins are swiftly positioned into place. The cows are traditional black and white. The leggy attendants tell us to lie down on massive scales, and the udders are positioned over our faces. Hmm, right from the teat? Is this sanitary? Chaz encourages us to continue guzzling, and the clock resumes. The milk is, of course, unpasteurized, coagulated. The studio lights do not help. They feel like buffet lamps. The milk curdles, going from lukewarm to scalding in seconds. The udders reek of shit and hay. They are freckled with dirt and zit-like protrusions. No, this is probably not sanitary. I look to see how Cindy is handling the situation, but my view is obstructed by my Holstein. I crouch up slightly and see that she is having almost no trouble with the task. How did she know how to milk a cow, I wonder? She grew up in D.C. I no longer bother to squirt the trickling milk into my mouth. Instead, I engulf the udder in my quivering lips. My Holstein begins to moo in what I imagine is discomfort. The A.D. quickly plays the moo track again. I don't give a shit. I am resolved not to let my fucking uncle go. I don't care if I hated him growing up. It is now a matter of pride. Beside me, Cindy is... I reposition my head. Is smirking? She gyrates two of the udders in a rhythmic clockwise rotation. Has she been taking classes? How the hell did she learn that technique? Left, right, left, right, round and round, squirt, squirt, squirt. I tug and mimic and soon enough have approximated a functional milking pattern. We drink on. Swallow. Must swallow. I am at nearly six gallons by now. Snails seem to cling to my esophagus. I realize this is impossible, that there are no snails in the milk, unless there are snails in the milk. Is this part of the competition? Did Cindy know this as well? That is unlikely, I reason. There are no snails. The snails are a trick of the mind. But it tickles, I think. Constantly. Snails would tickle. Upside down, I see my uncle bouncing down and up on the stage like he can't hold in a piss. The audience grows restless. The scythe ticker begins to flash again and the counting commences. What number are they on? Seven. Six. Fuck. I drink. Five. Four. Fuck. I drink. Three. Two. I stop. I am just in time to see the scythe decapitate Uncle Bobby. Poorly. The sound this time is amplified. The bone break is not even nor swift. It's crunchy. His arms twitch. Everything, everyone glistens. My fingers prune in the puddle of milk beside me. The head rolls down the tubular track. The sirens blare again, and the Holsteins are lifted back up into the rafters with a flourish. The moo track is played one last time. White balloons fall and confetti streamers streak and shimmery glitter explodes down the stage. The contest is over. There is no one else to decapitate in my family. I've lost. Cindy clasps her hands above her head triumphantly. A milky froth foams at the corners of her puffed lips. Her body shakes like she's in an aphylactic shock. She looks pregnant, with triplets. Chaz congratulates her. She stutters to me not to be a sore loser. At the AD's motioning, I offer my hand to congratulate her, though I don't want to. She shakes the hand violently. The sudden motion is too quick, I realize. She is shaking me too quickly. I feel a belch. 
I try to quench it, to swallow the burp, but cannot. I look down to my belly, then up to her, and hold myself. Cindy looks down at my belly with confusion, as if to say, what now? But before I can answer, from my mouth, like old faithful, a geyser erupts, showering us. The loaf of whole wheat bread disperses in granular, digested chunks. Through the stream, I see the lights for cameras two and three blink, probably going in for the close-up. Chaz narrates what is happening with renewed vigor. Not unlike clam chowder, he describes. It rains over both of us for what seems like minutes. When I finish, we are both blanketed in the chunky glaze. I do not speak, but look up at the aftermath. On the scaffold before me, my family rests, a mound of red. Between us is a frothy, loamy gray. The audience roars with laughter. Chaz says, that's all, and waves goodnight, reminding the home viewers to tune in next week. Cameras one, two, and three shut off. The scalding lights go dim. We are in commercial. Cindy turns to me and whispers under the applause. Fuck you, Kevin. John Stadler currently teaches a fiction workshop at the University of Colorado Boulder. He likes orbs, hates his cat, and is writing a collection of short stories. Thanks for listening to Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for more information.